Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week in journalism and the Vatican and the global church beat. Here's what we've got for you this week. We begin with On the Road Again. Pope Francis leaves tomorrow for Lisbon, Portugal, for the latest edition of World Youth Day, this massive gathering of Catholics from all around the world that has been dubbed the Olympic Games of the Catholic Church, or sometimes the Catholic Woodstock. I'm going to give you three storylines to watch while the Pope is out of town. Secondly, we have got that is all you needed to say. That, of course, is a reference to the film Pulp Fiction. And the famous character of the wolf, played memorably by Harvey Keitel. Now, the wolf was the ultimate fix-it man, right? Like, if he was being sent into a situation, you knew it was under control. Well, when it comes to the sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church, the Pope's equivalent of the wolf are two guys, Maltese Archbishop Charles Chacluna, and Spanish Monsignor Jordi Bertomeu, who are currently in Peru investigating a scandal-plagued lay group there. We'll explain what they're looking at and what we might expect. Third, hard time. A Vatican prosecutor has recommended a total of 73 years in prison for the 10 defendants in the Vatican's trial of the century including a recommended seven years and three months for Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the very first prince of the church ever to be tried under new rules created by Pope Francis that allows cardinals to be judged by the Vatican's criminal court. Now, while the prosecution has rested its case, that doesn't mean that all the questions about this trial have been laid to rest. We'll try to unpack what's going on and what to watch for. Fourth up this week, we have got Let Them Eat Cake, Marie Antoinette's famous response to bread shortages just before the French Revolution. Pope Francis, over the weekend, in his noontime Sunday Angelus address, engaged bread shortages himself, this time as a result of Russia's withdrawal from a grain deal that allowed grain and other foodstuffs to be exported from Ukrainian ports, despite the ongoing war, Pope Francis issued a direct challenge to the Russian Federation over the weekend to get back on board with this deal. We'll describe what the Pope said and what the diplomatic consequences of it might be. And then finally, what happens to a dream deferred? That, of course, is a quote from Langston Hughes's famous poem. In this case, I am using it to refer to perhaps history's greatest dream at least of the last 150 years, involving Catholic social teaching, which was born here in Italy at a Benedictine monastery known as Camaldoli 80 years ago. And I'm going to try to explain why the fact that this dream has been deferred doesn't necessarily mean that the dream is dead. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So please, for the love of God, don't change your channel. Don't log off. Don't click away. Don't go anywhere. This is going to be a great show. You're not going to want to miss it, so please stick around. And it's true confessions time. I'm going to admit to you that when it comes to 21st century high technology, I'm not really your guy. I mean, to be honest with you, I think social media is basically a work of the devil, and I'm not entirely kidding about that. 
I don't have accounts on Instagram or TikTok or LinkedIn or any of these other things that you're supposed to have, and I don't even know what any of those things mean. When it comes to artificial intelligence, I don't really get what the buzz is about because frankly, whatever intelligence I possess has been artificial for a very long time. However, I like to think that what I lack in tech savvy, I can make up for in judgments about people. And so when people I respect, people I admire, people I trust, tell me that a particular piece of technology is valuable, I listen to them. And that brings us by a roundabout fashion to a new technological platform called Magisterium AI that has been launched by our friends at Longbeard. Longbeard is a digital strategy and design company. They are the backbone of the technological dimension of Crux. Basically speaking, everything about how the Crux site operates, everything you see, when you come to the correct site is because of them. Frankly, my show last week in the church is because of them. The CEO of Longbeard, Matthew Sanders, once came to me and said, you know, I think we could do something with a weekly video and podcast. And I was dumb enough to listen to him, and here we are. Now, Longbeard has put out this new tool which harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. So you can go on their site and type in, what does the Catholic Church teach on abortion? Or why do we have to go to Mass? Or could you please write a homily for me for the Feast of Christ the King? Whatever. And based upon this tool's exposure to official documents of the Catholic Church, it will spit out a response. And it will also give you citations. So if you want to check to make sure that it's legit, you'll have the tools to do that. It is one of the more creative, useful, hopeful, and I think positive applications of AI technology in the Catholic sphere anyone to date has come up with. So I encourage you to check it out. You can find it online at magisterium.com. Again, that is magisterium.com. Look, like I say, I am not a tech guy, but even I would use this tool, and I promise you, if I'm open to it, if I see some value to it, then that special Luddite in your life will too. Check it out, Magisterium AI. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy August 1st in the year of our Lord, 2023. Now, I'm old enough to remember that when August in Rome rolled around, it meant only one thing, and that was vacation. In fact, what the Romans used to say is that only two things move in Rome during the month of August, cani e americani, dogs and Americans. This, however, is the Pope Francis era, where vacation is a dirty word. There is no such thing anymore as downtime. So this has been another big week on the Vatican beat, and so let's dive in. We begin with On the Road Again. That, of course, a reference to the famous Willie Nelson classic. By the way, did you know that Willie Nelson is 90 years old? He's actually older than the Pope. But in any event, Pope Francis is set to be on the road again beginning tomorrow, that is Wednesday, August 2nd, when he will leave for Lisbon, Portugal for World Youth Day, this massive rally of Catholic youth from around the world. 
Estimates are there are already around 1 million participants in World Youth Day who are currently in Lisbon. And by the time the final events take place, that is the vigil Saturday night and the concluding mass Sunday morning, we are expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million people to be on town. Let me give you three storylines to watch for as this is unfolding. But before I do that, let me just give you one warning. Okay, and here's the warning. I've covered World Youth Day since 1993. That's when Pope John Paul II went to Denver. And I can tell you, here's what happens every time. In the run-up to the event, that is today, tomorrow, maybe the, you know, the next day, the media storylines are going to be all about gloom and doom, all the challenges, all the problems, all the way that this outing could go wrong. Then what's going to start happening is that video and still images of these massive, excited, dynamic crowds who are all loving life and loving the Pope are going to start to roll in. And those of us in the media will shift gears and we will start doing stories about what a magnificent and overwhelming triumph this outing has been. Now, here's the thing, folks. Neither the initial storm and drong nor the overtones of triumph at the end really capture the whole story. Both of them are a little bit exaggerated. The truth, as ever, is a little bit in the middle. And in terms of figuring out in this balance between disaster and triumph where this trip is going to fall, let me give you three keys to look for. Number one will be the Pope's health. This, of course, is Pope Francis's first overseas trip since in June he went into the hospital for an operation on a hernia in the abdomen. Now, this was on top of the surgery he had two years ago to remove part of his colon. It's on top of the fact that it continues to suffer from sciatica, this painful nerve condition that makes it difficult for him to stand or to move. You know, it's on top of ongoing problems in his knees. And, you know, the fact as a young man, he had part of one lung removed, the fact that he's had a cataract surgery, and on and on and on and on. And the, and the mere fact that he's 86 years old, and that, you know, you always, therefore, have to be worried about what the impact of something like this is going to be. Now, let me just say that the Pope we have seen since his surgery in June, and, and let me be clear that his schedule during the month of July was reduced in order for him to conserve his energies a bit. But on the occasions we have seen him in public, including just this past Sunday when he delivered his Angelus address, he has looked good to go. He has seemed strong, resilient, in full possession of his faculties, and basically better, actually, than we have seen him in a while. Nevertheless, how well he holds up under the demands of this trip will be very closely scrutinized in part because one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we entering a phase of the papacy in which, because of physical circumstances, Francis is going to have to be more of a stay-at-home pope? Now, it doesn't look like that in the short term, because just a couple of weeks after he gets back from Portugal, he is scheduled to go to Mongolia. That's a nine-hour flight from Rome, where he's supposed to spend five days. And then after that, in late September, he's supposed to spend a couple of days in Marseille in France for a summit regarding the Mediterranean. But the question is, going forward, will he be able to sustain the demands of travel, or is he going to have to govern more from the center of power in Rome? 
Bear in mind, Francis memorably has said that you don't have to have legs to run the Catholic Church. You only have to have a brain. Certainly no indication he doesn't still have that. But we will be judging his legs, I suppose is the way to put it, during these five days in Portugal. All right, a second storyline to look for will be numbers. That always is, in a way, how we evaluate the success or failure of a World Youth Day. Memorably, when John Paul II was in Manila in 1995 for World Youth Day, he drew a crowd estimated at somewhere between four and five million people, one of the largest crowds ever for a papal event. When Pope Francis was in Rio for World Youth Day in 2013, the crowd was again estimated at somewhere between three and four million. The measure of success on that trip, by the way, is that the Pope outdrew on Rio's Copacabana Beach, he outdrew both the Rolling Stones and Elton John, which I guess is how you know you've arrived, right, as a pop culture icon. So, you know, we will once again be evaluating the numbers here. The numbers, by the way, are going to be enormous. They always are. And, you know, the conclusion I think most of us in the media will draw is that whatever challenges the Catholic Church is facing, (laughs) there nevertheless is still some gas left in the tank. There's still some human capital there. If a pope can generate the kinds of oceanic crowds we we are likely to see in Lisbon. And then finally, a storyline to watch for is sex abuse. Portugal is a country where the church has recently been rocked by clerical abuse scandals in February. A commission created, actually, by the bishops of Portugal delivered its report, finding that somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 people had been sexually abused by Catholic clerics, mostly priests, in Portugal since 1950. And there were sort of two points of controversy about all this. One, was the Catholic Church going to pay reparations? to these victims? And number two, would priests who had been identified as abusers in this report, who were still in ministry, would they be removed? Now, initially, the Cardinal of Lisbon, Manuel Clemente, basically said no to both of those questions, saying the church would do what the law required, but no more, and that as far as those priests had been named, who had been named in the report, he said, these are just names, we don't have any proof. Now, both of those points were contested by members of the commission. In the end, Clemente had to backtrack on both points, saying, well, the church might be open to paying reparations even if the law doesn't necessarily require it. And at least four of the 20 priests named in that report, who were still currently in ministry, have since been suspended. We'll see what happens with the others. So obviously, everyone will be watching what Pope Francis says or does with regard to the legacy of clerical sexual abuse. He is, it has already been announced that he will meet sexual abuse victims while he is in Portugal. Now, the way the Vatican handles these things is they never tell us in advance when that meeting is going to take place or who is going to participate in it or what is going to be talked about. Basically, the approach always is to protect the confidentiality of the victims who take part and then to allow them afterwards to be the one to tell the story about what happened. Nevertheless, the extent to which victims walk away from that meeting feeling that the Pope has heard them and that they got concrete indications that action will follow, so it's not mere rhetoric, that is obviously going to be very closely scrutinized. 
But at the end of the day, folks, let me make you this promise. What's going to happen at the end of this trip is that we are going to see images of vast throngs of pumped up, high octane, over the moon Catholic youth who were simply excited to be in an environment where their Catholic identity is affirmed and celebrated in unclear public display. And fundamentally, that's going to be the storyline. That's not to say these other things don't matter, but it is to say that's going to be the impression that most of these young participants take home with them when this World Youth Day wraps up. All right. Second up this week, we have that's all you had to say. Now, if you've seen Pulp Fiction, you know what that's a reference to. I can't give you the whole quote because this is a family program. But nevertheless, the point is, what it meant is that the bad guy was sending in his fixer to clean up a messy situation. Well, Pope Francis, who is, of course, not the bad guy, but the good one in this story, has sent in his own fixers to the nation of Peru, that is, Maltese Archbishop Charles Chacluna and Spanish Monsignor Jordi Bertomeu, both of whom are essentially sponsored by the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, which has responsibility for dealing with the clerical abuse scandals. They're in Peru to investigate an outfit that is known as the Sodalitium Christiani Vitae, or the Sodality of Christian Life was founded in 1971 by a Peruvian layman by the name of Luis Fernando Figari, who has subsequently been accused of all manner of abuses, not simply sexual abuse, but also abuses of authority, abuses of conscience. He was essentially found guilty by a Vatican investigation after an explosive 2015 book came out documenting all of this. And the organization ever since has allegedly been on a path of internal reform. However, various factors have converged to raise questions about the success of that reform. In Peru, a parliamentary investigation recently wrapped up suggesting that the cover-up and denial didn't end with Figueroa being deposed as leader of the group, but actually has continued. There is a Peruvian journalist by the name of Paulo Ugaz who has been one of the leading forces exposing and reporting on these allegations. And she is continuing up to this very day to be slapped with what critics would describe as nuisance lawsuits by people affiliated with the sodality, which, again, many observers would see as a fairly crass attempt to muzzle her, and other former members of the organization continue to come forward alleging that in various ways the organization continues to be in denial about its past and its modus operandi. One of the things that is apparently on the table is the idea of just dissolving the sodality, that is, canceling it, shutting it down. Now, this has, up to this point, never been done for an organization in the Catholic Church whose founder or their leader member, leading members have been found guilty of sexual abuse. I mean, one thinks, for example, of the Legion of Christ, founded by Mexican father Marcel Maciel de Golado, 
who was found guilty of sexual abuse and other abuses, but the legionaries continue to exist and have been allowed to attempt a pathway of reform. The question is, at the end of their review, will Shakluna and Bertomeu conclude that in this case, reform simply isn't possible and the group just has to be, well, what we need is a Carthaginian peace, right? The group just has to be wiped out of existence. We don't know the answer to that question, but it's certainly what a lot of people will be waiting to see. In the meantime, the journalists and former members of this organization who have been meeting with Shakluna and Bertomeu in Peru have reported very positive experiences. They have high expectations for what the outcome may be. We'll see how it all plays out. All right, third up this week, hard time. So Alessandro Didi, who is a veteran Roman lawyer, and recently has been named the promoter of justice, that is the kind of lead prosecutor for the Vatican. And he's the one who's been kind of the Jack McCoy for you law and order fans, <laughs> that is the, the prosecuting attorney in the Vatican's trial of the century, which is this trial against 10 defendants, including for the very first time a cardinal, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, for various forms of financial crime, most of them related to a spectacularly failed $400 million land deal in London. Didi, at long last, this past week, wrapped up the prosecution case in this trial. And basically the way the Vatican system works, which mimics the Italian system, is that the prosecutor, after he sums up his case, he makes proposals to the judges for what the verdicts should be, what the sentences should be, okay? And in his proposals, Didi kind of went all in. For the 10 defendants, who include a cluster of former Vatican officials, a couple of Italian financiers who were involved in this London deal, Bechu and others, he has recommended a total of 73 years in prison, if you add up the recommended sentences for all the 10 defendants. And that includes a recommended seven years and three months for Bechu. And that, by the way, is in addition to a pretty stiff fine that he wants imposed on Bechu and confiscation of assets to compensate the Vatican for what are estimated to be somewhere between $150 million and $200 million that it lost in this London deal. Now, look, these are just recommendations. What's going to happen is that the court now will take its August break. This court, by the way, is the only outfit in the Vatican that seems to still observe the idea that August is totally downtime. They will reassemble in late September. They will hear from the civil parties who were involved in this process, and then they will hear from the defense attorneys. And finally, they are expected to render a verdict sometime in December, that is, right before the end of the year. So, you know, we have to see what the actual results are going to be. In the meantime, I think what can be said is this. Didi has sort of doubled down on his case, and that has delighted people who believe that the defendants in this case, believing with Bechu, are actually guilty. On the other hand, for the substantial portion of public opinion inside the Catholic Church and out of it that is a little dubious about this process, there are still 
many remaining unanswered questions. I mean, one of them, Didi's case relies to a great degree on the testimony of a formal official in the Vatican Secretary of State, Monsignor Alberto Perlasca, who was actually the engineer of this London deal, but who to date has never been charged with a crime. And we all know that if you were relying on a whistleblower who was basically trying to throw everybody else under the bus in order to avoid being indicted himself, you have to take that with a grain of salt, right? Secondly, Didi has refused to enter into evidence the full transcript of Perlaska's testimony and other key pieces of evidence, arguing that they are germane to other unnamed, unidentified, secret, ongoing investigations against unnamed, unidentified, secret, potential defendants. That has raised the hackles of defense attorneys who were like, hey, how are we supposed to put on a defense if we can't refer to all of the evidence in the case? And there are other unanswered questions. Basically, I guess the point is that as this trial nears its endgame for, you know, the next few months, until December. The burden really is going to be on the court to show that this this prosecution, which was intended to be a demonstration that reform in the direction of transparency and accountability in the Pope Francis era is for real, that that's actually what's going on here, as opposed to a kind of show trial in which certain scapegoats have been served up in order to insulate higher ups in the system, including, for instance, the Cardinal Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, or the current number two in the Secretary of State, Venezuelan Archbishop Edgardo Peña Parra, both of whom signed off on this London transaction at every stage, you know, that what's going to have to be shown is that this is not an exercise simply intended to let them off the hook at the expense of some low-hanging fruit. At this stage, I think it is fair to say that Didi may have summed up his case, but he has not yet won that argument. In the court of public opinion, we will have to see what the judges have to say. All right, fourth up this week, let them eat cake, the famous mot of which turned out to be not juiced at all, actually, of Marie Antoinette when informed that peasants in Paris were upset about the lack of bread just before the French Revolution, you know, which was passed into history as a symbol of privileged indifference to the suffering of the masses. Well, the masses around the world are suffering once again from a lack of bread after Russia earlier this month backed out of a deal that allowed for the safe transport of grain and other foodstuffs from Ukrainian ports, especially Odessa, to reach primarily the developing world. Both Russia and Ukraine are among the largest suppliers of wheat, corn, other grains, other foodstuffs to the world, especially the developing world. About 60% of Ukraine's grain exports, these are the estimates, go to poor nations around the world. Since Russia entered into this deal for grain supplies a year ago, world food prices declined by an estimated 20%, and the supply routes to the developing nations eased up again, hunger was abated. Now that Russia has backed out, prices have spiked again. The allegation, anyway, is that Russia so far, in its attacks on Odessa, 
have destroyed about 60,000 metric tons of grain, which could have gone, of course, to feed people. Now, Russia insists that it backed out of the deal because part of the deal was supposed to be to allow its own food exports and fertilizers to be sold around the world. They're claiming that never happened. This Sunday, Pope Francis said that attacks on grain are a grave offense against God because grain is a gift of God intended to feed the world. He said that the cries of millions of hungry brothers and sisters reached to heaven. And he appealed to his brothers, and that was a carefully chosen word, his brothers, who are the leaders of the Russian Federation, to get back on board with this deal. By saying brothers, of course, the Pope is trying to say, I am not joining the ideological crusade of the West against Russia. I'm trying to be even-handed, but I'm saying this deal is important. Now, why all this matters is that from the beginning of the conflict, the Vatican has been trying to find a way to help bring this war to an end. So far, neither the Ukrainians or the Russians appear interested in a peace deal. So the Vatican has been trying to find some other role to play, whether that is opening humanitarian corridors to deliver aid to the conflict zones, whether that is the restitution of children who have been removed from eastern Ukraine by the Russians to their families. Now there is the possibility that the Vatican and Pope Francis might be able to play a role in getting this grain deal back up and running. If they were able to do that, it would be seen as a significant diplomatic accomplishment and perhaps, just perhaps, just maybe, might open a pathway to an eventual peace. We'll see how it plays out. Finally this week, what happens to a dream deferred? I have a piece on the Crux site that I recommend all of you read. It is about a dramatic assembly that took place in Italy 80 years ago last week at the Benedictine Monastery of Camaldoli, where a remarkable cross-section of Catholic thinkers and politicians came together. It included two future prime ministers of Italy, Aldo Moro and Giulio Andreotti, a future cardinal, Pietro Pavan, a thinker who was an advisor to both the future Pope Paul VI and also Alcide de Gasperi, who was the first prime minister of post-war Italy. It gave birth to a dream of a new state, a new republic, based on the principles of Catholic social teaching. Now, that dream has never really been fully realized. I mean, we all know how Christian democracy in Italy ended. It imploded in the Tangentopoli or bribe city scandals in the 1990s. The wheels kind of came off. But that doesn't mean the dream of a state based on social justice, based on equity, the two core principles identified at Camaldoli, the common good and social harmony, that doesn't mean that that dream doesn't still have legs. Langston Hughes famously asked, what happens to a dream deferred? Well, the dream of that assembly at Camaldoli is still there. It's still on the shelf. And it can be taken down and applied, not just in Italy, but anywhere, where an aroused Catholic conscience wants to make a difference in the way that society is organized in the direction of greater justice, greater peace, and greater human dignity. And so, if you are not familiar with the Codice di Camaldoli, the Code of Camaldoli, I recommend that you read this piece because it is, in my opinion, probably the most fascinating experiment in the hard work of trying to translate Catholic social teaching into actual governance in the last 150 years check it out. That is our show for this week. Thank you very much for being with us. 
We will be back here, same bat time, same bat channel, next Tuesday with a full wrap on Pope Francis and Lisbon and everything else that is bubbling on the Vatican beat. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again very soon.